you have the army of mediocrities followed by the multitude of fools as the mediocrities and the fools always form the immense majority it is impossible for them to elect an intelligent government oof incisive even all these years later welcome back to folksy the storytelling podcast as always i am your host ishan wadwa aka izer in the second season we explored the best 19th century short story writers our chosen author today is one whose work i have admired for a long time now in fact monsieur guy de maupassant is one of the original inspirations behind this podcast to give you a brief intro of his highly extensive life mr maupassant was a protege of the legendary gustave flaubert and you'll find quite a few of his iconic short stories to be based around the franco-prussian war of the 19th century while most such shorts of his are situated in the provincial regions of france our story of the day well isn't so let's get on with the tale this story is called two friends besieged paris was in the throes of famine even the sparrows on the roofs and the rats in the sewers were growing scarce people were eating anything they could get as monsieur morisso watchmaker by profession and idler for the nonce was strolling along the boulevard one bright january morning his hands in his trousers pockets and stomach empty he suddenly came face to face with an acquaintance monsieur sauvage a fishing chum before the war broke out morisso had been in the habit every sunday morning of setting forth with a bamboo rod in his hand and a tin box on his back he took the argentul train got out at colombe and walked thence to the isle marante the moment he arrived at this place of his dreams he began fishing and fished till nightfall every sunday he met in this very spot monsieur sauvage a stout jolly little man a draper in the rue notre dame de lorette and also an ardent fisherman they often spent half the day side by side rod in hand and feet dangling over the water and a warm friendship had sprung up between the two some days they did not speak at other times they chatted but they understood each other perfectly without the aid of words having similar tastes and feelings In the spring about 10 o'clock in the morning when the early sun caused a light mist to float on the water and gently warmed the backs of the two enthusiastic anglers Morisso would occasionally remark to his neighbor my but it's pleasant here to which the other would reply i can't imagine anything better and these few words suffice to make them understand and appreciate each other in the autumn toward the close of the day 
When the setting sun shed a blood red glow over the western sky and the reflection of the crimson clouds tinged the whole river with red, brought a glow to the faces of the two friends and gilded the trees, whose leaves were already turning at the first chill touch of winter, Monsieur Sauvage would sometimes smile at Morisseau and say, What a glorious spectacle! And Morisseau would answer, without taking his eyes from his float, This is much better than the boulevard, isn't it? As soon as they recognized each other, they shook hands cordially, affected at the thought of meeting under such changed circumstances. Monsieur Sauvage, with a sigh, murmured, These are sad times. Morisseau shook his head mournfully, and such weather. This is the first fine day of the year. The sky was, in fact, of a bright, cloudless blue. They walked along, side by side, reflective and sad. And to think of the fishing, said Morisseau. What good times we used to have. When shall we be able to fish again? asked Monsieur Savage. They entered a small cafe and took an absence together, then resumed their walk along the pavement. Morisseau stopped suddenly. Shall we have another absinthe? he asked. If you like, agreed Monsieur Savage. And they entered another wine shop. They were quite unsteady when they came out, owing to the effect of the alcohol on their empty stomachs. It was a fine, mild day, and a gentle breeze fanned their faces. The fresh air completed the effect of the alcohol on Monsieur Sauvage. He stopped suddenly, saying, Suppose we go there? Where? Fishing. But where? Why, to the old place. The French outposts are close to Colombe. I know Colonel Domolin, and we shall easily get leave to pass. Morisot trembled with desire. Very well, I agree. And they separated to fetch their rods and lines. An hour later, they were walking side by side on the high road. Presently, they reached the villa occupied by the colonel. He smiled at their request and granted it. They resumed their walk, furnished with a password. Soon, they left the outpost behind them, made their way through deserted Colombe and found themselves on the outskirts of the small vineyards which bordered the Sienne. It was about 11 o'clock. Before them lay the village of Argentul, apparently lifeless. The heights of Orgemont and Sanoy dominated the landscape. The great plain extending as far as Nanterre was empty, quite empty, 
a waste of dun-colored soil and bare cherry trees. Monsieur Sauvage, pointing to the heights, murmured, The Prussians are up yonder. And the sight of the deserted country filled the two friends with vague misgivings. The Prussians. They had never seen them as yet, but they had felt their presence in the neighborhood of Paris for months past. Ruining France, pillaging, massacring, starving them. And a kind of superstitious terror mingled with the hatred they already felt toward this unknown, victorious nation. Suppose we were to meet any of them, said Morisot. We'd offer them some fish, replied Monsieur Sauvage, with that Parisian light-heartedness which nothing can wholly quench. Still, they hesitated to show themselves in the open country overawed by the utter silence which reigned around them. At last, Monsieur Sauvage said boldly, Come, we'll make a start. Only let us be careful. And they made their way through one of the vineyards, bent double, creeping along beneath the cover afforded by the vines, with eye and ear alert. A strip of bare ground remained to be crossed before they could gain the river bank. They ran across this and, as soon as they were at the water's edge, concealed themselves among the dry reeds. Morisot placed his ear to the ground to ascertain, if possible, whether footsteps were coming their way. He heard nothing. They seemed to be utterly alone. Their confidence was restored and they began to fish. Before them, the deserted Isle Marante hid them from the farther shore. The little restaurant was closed and looked as if it had been deserted for years. Monsieur Sauvage caught the first gudgeon, Monsieur Morisot the second, and almost every moment, one or other raised their line with a little glittering silvery fish wriggling at the end. They were having excellent sport. They slipped their catch gently into a close meshed bag lying at their feet. They were filled with joy. The joy of once more indulging in a pastime of which they had long been deprived. The sun poured its rays on their backs. They no longer heard anything or thought of anything. They ignored the rest of the world. They were fishing. But suddenly, a rumbling sound, which seemed to come from the bowels of the earth, shook the ground beneath them. The cannon were resuming their thunder. Morisot turned his head and could see toward the left, beyond the banks of the river, the formidable outline of Mont Valerian from whose summit arose a white puff of smoke. The next instant, a second puff followed the first and in a few moments, a fresh detonation made the earth tremble. Others followed and minute by minute, others followed and minute by minute, 
The mountain gave forth its deadly breath and a white puff of smoke, which rose slowly into the peaceful heaven and floated above the summit of the cliff. Monsieur Sauvage shrugged his shoulders. They are at it again, he said. Morisot, who was anxiously watching his float bobbing up and down, was suddenly seized with the angry impatience of a peaceful man. Toward the madmen who were firing thus and remarked indignantly, What fools they are to kill one another like that! They're worse than animals, replied Monsieur Sauvage. And Morisot, who had just caught a bleak, declared, And to think it will be just the same as long as there are governments. The Republic would not have declared war, interposed Monsieur Sauvage. Under a king, we have foreign wars. Under a Republic... We have civil war. And the two began placidly discussing political problems with the sound common sense of peaceful, matter-of-fact citizens, agreeing on one point, that they would never be free. And Mont Valerian thundered ceaselessly, demolishing the houses of the French with its cannonballs, grinding lives of men to powder, destroying many a dream, many a cherished hope many a prospective happiness, ruthlessly causing endless woe and suffering in the hearts of wives, of daughters, of mothers, in other lands. Such is life, declared Monsieur Sauvage. Say rather, such is death, replied Morisot, laughing. But they suddenly trembled with alarm at the sound of footsteps behind them and Turning around, they perceived close at hand four tall bearded men, dressed after the manner of livery servants and wearing flat caps on their heads. They were covering the two anglers with their rifles. The rods slipped from their owner's grasp and floated away down the river. In the space of a few seconds, they were seized, bound, thrown into a boat and taken across to the Isle Marante. And behind the house they had thought deserted were about a score of German soldiers. A shaggy-looking giant who was bestriding a chair and smoking a long clay pipe addressed them in excellent French with the words, Well, gentlemen, have you had good luck with your fishing? Then a soldier deposited at the officer's feet a bag full of fish, which he had taken care to bring away. The Prussian smiled. Not bad, I see. But we have something else to talk about. Listen to me and don't be alarmed. You must know that in my eyes, you are two spies sent to reconnoiter me and my movements. Naturally, I capture you and I shoot you. You pretended to be fishing, the better to disguise your real errand. You have fallen into my hands and must take the consequences. Such is war.
But as you came here through the outposts, you must have a password for your return. Tell me that password and I will let you go. The two friends, pale as death, stood silently side by side, a slight fluttering of the hands alone betraying their emotion. No one will ever know. You will return peacefully to your homes and the secret will disappear with you. If you refuse, it means death, instant death. Choose. They stood motionless and did not open their lips. The Prussian, perfectly calm, went on with hand outstretched towards the river. Just think that in five minutes, you will be at the bottom of that water. In five minutes! You have relations, I presume? Mount Valerian still thundered. The two fishermen remained silent. The German turned and gave an order in his own language. Then he moved his chair a little way off that he might not be so near the prisoners and a dozen men stepped forward, rifle in hand and took up a position 20 paces off. I give you one minute, said the officer. Not a second longer. Then he rose quickly, went over to the two Frenchmen, took Morisot by the arm, led him a short distance off and said in a low voice, Quick, the password. Your friend will know nothing. I will pretend to be relentless. Morisot answered not a word. Then the Prussian took Monsieur Sauvage aside in like manner and made him the same proposal. Monsieur Sauvage made no reply. Again, they stood side by side. The officer issued his orders. The soldiers raised their rifles. Then by chance, Morisot's eyes fell on the bag full of gudgeon lying in the grass a few feet from him. A ray of sunlight made the still quivering fish glisten like silver. And Morisot's heart sank. Despite his efforts at self-control, his eyes filled with tears. Goodbye, Monsieur Sauvage, he faltered. Goodbye, Monsieur Morisot, replied Sauvage. They shook hands, trembling from head to foot, with a dread beyond their mastery. The officer cried, Fire! The twelve shots were as one. Monsieur Sauvage fell forward instantaneously. Morisot, being the taller, swayed slightly and fell across his friend with face turned skyward and blood oozing from a rent in the breast of his coat. The German issued fresh orders. His men dispersed and presently returned with ropes and large stones which they attached to the feet of the two friends. Then they carried them to the riverbank. Mont Valerian 
its summit now enshrouded in smoke, still continued to thunder. Two soldiers took Moriso by the hand and the feet. Two others did the same with Sauvage. The bodies, swung lustily by strong hands, were cast to a distance and, describing a curve, fell feet foremost into the stream. The water splashed high, foamed, eddied, then grew calm. Tiny waves lapped ashore. A few streaks of blood flecked the surface of the river. The officer, calm throughout, remarked with grim humor, It's the fish's turn now. Then he retraced his way to the house. Suddenly, he caught sight of the net full of gudgeons, lying forgotten in the grass. He picked it up, examined it, smiled and called, Wilhelm! A white-aproned soldier responded to the summons and the Prussian, tossing him the catch of the two murdered men, said, Have these fish fried for me at once, while they are still alive. They'll make a tasty dish. Then, he resumed his pipe. And that was today's tale. So, if you've heard of Guy de Maupassant before, you'll know that there's the story of his called Boil de Suif or The Dumpling, which is considered his best short story. I don't know, I have read quite a few of his and each of his shorts have a gravity of their own. Also, this particular story, Two Friends, has been studied by quite a few scholars for its depth of semiotic work, as in the signs and symbols that are just hidden throughout the writing. I actually agree with those scholars, there is quite a bit of symbology in here. While I'm not a semiotics expert myself, what I can tell you is that Guy de Maupassant is one of the most vibrant yet centered authors of the 19th century, especially in the short story genre. And if you decide to ever explore the effects of war and famine and basically what amounted to a pandemic back in the day, this is the person you would look to for the stories that he has presented. And I found the story itself to be in a lot of ways quite reminiscent of what's happening in, in the world in general and in India specifically right now. The provinces. People in cities, we have it to a large extent better than the provinces and yet the states in general are blocking migrants from going home. Blocking them from the things that don't cost us anything. Why can't they go home? But that's not the remit of this conversation. So that's all we have from the story today. But what did you think about it? Liked it? Loved it? Hated it? Whatever the case might be, I would love to hear your thoughts. So just follow the link in the description to leave me a voice note. I'll even include it in the next episode of the podcast. Musical credits are to our friend Broad Riddiman, who can... You can check out the link to his track in the description. 
Also, if you want to read today's tale for yourself, it's available as always on gutenberg.org. That's G-U-T-E-N-B-E-R-G.org. You can just search for Guy de Maupassant's works. And this is the second story in his collected uh, edition. Until next time, I've been your host, Ishan Vadva, a.k.a. Iser. And I'll leave you with another Guy de Maupassant quote that might help you in these difficult times. To love very much is to love inadequately. We love, that is all. Love cannot be modified without being nullified. Love is a short word, but it contains everything. Love means the body, the soul, the life, the entire being. We feel love as we feel the warmth of our blood. We breathe love as we breathe the air. We hold it in ourselves as we hold our thoughts. Nothing more exists for us. Love is not a word. It is a wordless state indicated by four letters. Stay safe. Be well. See you next time.